0: We've been in a series in 1 Peter, entitled Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World. And in this section that we've been spending our time in for the past couple of weeks, there's been a particular theme that Peter has been exhorting the elect exiles in, and by extension the rest of us. And that is the theme of submission. You have the English Standard Version. Your title at verse 13 actually says submission to authority. And that's what we've been focusing on for a couple of weeks now. We were looking at submitting to human institutions. We looked at the, the role of government. And particularly as it pertains to Christians in their relationship to the government command there was to submit to human institutions. And then we looked last week at the servant and master dynamic. And while we confess and we readily admit that we do not have the slave master dynamic at work in our context today, so we don't have an immediate parallel contextualization to make, we do see that there are principles there for us to draw to use in the workplace, while we're not slaves and masters, and how you might feel about that is a different thing, but we don't have that exact dynamic. We do have the employer-employee dynamic, and in like manner, the command there is to submit. And so it is today. We're going to look at the way that Christ Submitted himself, and how he became the suffering servant on our behalf. In Philippians chapter two, Paul writes that Jesus, speaking of Jesus, that he emptied himself, taking on the likeness of a slave. How did he do that? By taking on a body like ours. Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh, the Word who was with God at the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time, the one and only from the Father, the one who, with whom the Father has made an eternal covenant to give him a people with. That Jesus took on the life of a servant. To do what? prophesied in Isaiah 53 to suffer. Not meaninglessly. Not without profound purpose. But He did it for you and for me. So this morning we're going to turn our attention to see how He suffered. See what He endured. And even to see the example that He set for us as believers. As those washed in his blood to walk according to. The title of our sermon today is The Call to Christ-like suffering. Undoubtedly, this is an element of the Christian life that is altogether forgotten, if not looked over and purposefully left out of many pulpits, because who wants to hear that if you want to be like Jesus, that means you have to suffer to hear that. You want to hear being like Jesus means that you're nice, that you can prophesy, and you can heal people. That's what being like Jesus is like. But Peter's attention here is to be like Jesus means to suffer well for the glory of God. So with that in mind, let's stand together. Let's read 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 is going to be our focus. But let's actually start at verse 18 and read through 25. This is the word of the living God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for ordaining this suffering. We thank you for sending Christ, who suffered in our place. And endured what was meant for us. Lord, it's almost a ridiculous task to try and explain what Christ endured. How can any of us quantify the affliction that was laid upon Christ for our sake on the cross? But by the power of the Spirit, I ask you that you empower your word going forward and empower the receiving of your word so that this Christ may receive His due reward and be glorified in the We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Our first major heading today is the call to suffer like Christ. For to this you have been... Peter is pointing back to what he wrote in verses 19 and 20. He was speaking there of, as we said a bit ago, the slave and master dynamic, which we again made the contextual application of our employment situations. Again, I want to clarify once again: this is not a perfect parallel by any means, but it is the closest thing that we have to that dynamic. And Certainly the principles that we learn serve us well in the workplace. But in those two verses, he was speaking of, as you saw, suffering under these masters. That if you suffer as consequence for doing bad things, that, well, you should expect that to happen. You sin. There are consequences. And there's no honor in it when you endure it. But to suffer unjustly, When you've done no wrong, but have actually done good, this is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. Now, we're not to take that to mean that God loves it when you suffer. That's not to mean that God loves it when you you have to go through things that are unjust. That's certainly not what it means. He's simply saying that it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God when you endure unjust suffering for the sake of God. Remember, he said, when you're mindful of God. And he says, to this, to suffering well, even when it is unjust suffering, you have been called. How often do you think of your calling in life you think it's this big, grandiose thing where you're going to be on stage in front of millions of people and you're going to win... I don't know, one of those singing shows. You press the button and people say you're a singer. You think that it's going to mean you're going to win the lottery, or you're going to uh, have this big, awesome, incredible, sensational thing in your life. And then we turn to Scripture and He says, here's what you've been called to, to suffer from the cause of Christ. Is that counterintuitive to what we think? And you see, the word called here comes from the word kaleo, which is used in the sense of God's effectual call of salvation. It's used in the same way that Peter used it earlier in verse 9, when he was saying that God called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We ought not be surprised then, brethren... When we are grieved by various trials, why? Because to this you have been called. What's more, is the disciples early on knew this. Back in Acts 14:22, Luke captures Paul telling the church that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus told His disciples in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. Paul writes in 2 Timothy three twelve, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you hear how emphatic all of these statements are? Will, will, must, will. Will not maybe, not it's possible, not it's by happenstance, it's it could happen eventually, but will and must later on in chapter 3, verse 9. Here in first Peter, he's going to write, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessed for to this you were called. But much like the Jews in first century Palestine we somehow fool ourselves into thinking that coming to know the Messiah is going to mean peace and prosperity and power. We expect these things to be realized in a physical, material, right now kind of way. Though we know these texts, though we know that Scripture Promises and guarantees, suffering and tribulation and affliction for the believer. Oftentimes, when it comes upon us, we say, "What is going on? Why me? Why do good things happen to good people?" The reality is that the bad things happen to good people. The reality is that that's only happened one time. I've heard people refer to that before and pointing out the reality that only Christ was the only good one who bad things genuinely happened to. But we'll readily confess that God is sovereign and then situations can occur in our life that are out of our control, and what do we do? We go into a tailspin. Oh, how we need to hear the words of this text today and keep them burned in the front our minds. Flatland Bible Church, to this you have been called. This is all the more relevant as it pertains to unjust suffering. The kind that we spoke of last week, that we saw in the previous section, that might transpire in the workplace. It isn't limited to the workplace, though, is it? That's certainly not the only place or context within which you can suffer unjustly. We can experience unjust suffering at the hands of the government, of law enforcement, of the culture, of your own family, and so on, and so on, and so on. But it would do us a world of help if when we are in those situations, instead of fixating on how unfair we deem the situation to be, how mistreated we just deem ourselves to be, to remember instead that to this I've been called. I'm only walking through what God has called me to. You need to hear this passage and be reminded afresh that Christianity guarantees difficulty in this life and bliss in the next one. It's not your best life now. It's your best life later. You have been called to a life of various forms and degrees of hardships, trials and persecution, and even unjust suffering for the sake of Christ. But why? Why is it this way? Well, let's look. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. The word here for suffer is actually used 12 times. In this letter, 12 different times Peter refers to suffering in this letter. Peter Peter is focused on reminding these believers of their hope and pointing them to their hope in the next life as they are either in the midst of suffering or soon to endure suffering. Remember that he acknowledges in chapter 1, verse 6, that they have been grieved by various trials. They were already experiencing some. And they would experience more suffering for the cause of Christ. While we might suffer for the cause of Christ, for the name of Christ, we will never suffer to the extent that Christ Himself Think about that, though. When Christ came, He knew Himself didn't happen upon Him. In fact, He came to suffer. He endured the suffering and left us an example of suffering. That word for example is so, so rich because it actually was used in the classroom setting to refer to these tablets that would be made that would have handwriting on them upon which children would take another piece of paper and learn how to trace and how to write. That's the kind of example that Christ set for us, is this is what it looks like to suffer well in this lifetime, so put your life on top of it, and it should be traced over Christ's example. He didn't suffer unknowingly. The suffering wasn't something bizarre. It was actually prophesied from long before There was no room at the end for Mary and Joseph. Christ knew the great suffering that awaited him. And he didn't back down. He didn't say, Well, let's find a different way instead. No, he took on a body like ours anyway. And as he walked this earth, he recognized it and readily acknowledged it with his disciples, almost preparing them. In Matthew 16 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's showing His disciples, you see, because they were expecting this Messiah who's going to come in and triumphantly return the kingdom back to the Israel, back to the chosen people of God. And Jesus said, My kingdom's not of this world. I'm here to suffer. Could you imagine waiting thousands of years for this great conquering Messiah and the one that comes is one who is humble and meek and came to suffer? Says to be... Mind-blowing to the disciples. What, what do you mean, Jesus? Even after His suffering on the cross, the disciples still didn't get it. In Luke chapter 24, from the road to Emmaus, they're sitting there talking about all this stuff that happened when the glorified Christ walks up on them. And He said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Listen to that. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's the Bible about? It's about God, it's about Jesus, it's about the plan of salvation. It's about how Christ is going to come as the suffering servant to suffer for the sins of His people and by doing so, set an example for His people. I want you to notice there that Jesus knew He must suffer. And He even goes as far as calling it necessary. Now while Jesus Christ obviously had a much clearer understanding of the manner in which the details that will be surrounding his suffering you and I today we know that we must suffer as well don't we because Peter's telling us to this you've been called the question we need to answer then is what will you do in that suffering what will you do when the flames of affliction burn hot in your life? Will you and fall into a depression? Will the flames of the affliction burn hotter than your devotion to Christ? Will it cause you to alienate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Will it cause you to grow cold towards God? You know, whenever Job endured all that he endured, his wife said, why are you still praising this God? Curse God and die. And Job said, You speak as foolish speak. Because what was his response? The moment that something transpired in his life, he felt him forward and he worshipped That should be our response. After all, Christ left us the example. Christ suffered and left us an example so that you might follow in his steps. But what did this example look like? Look at verse 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter here is drawing on Isaiah 53, which clearly heavily influenced his writing in this section of chapter 2. Here in verse 22, he's drawing from verse 9 of Isaiah 53 that says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I want you to see quickly four ways that Peter gives us that Christ exemplified suffering. Well, number one, There was no sin found in Christ. There was no sin found in Him. He committed no sin. While you and I will not be able to say the same thing, we are sinful people. And Christ is perfectly sinless. We still cannot allow our suffering to lead us into sinning. And I mean this in a very practical sense. Often, when things happen to you, you can be prone in your flesh to react in your flesh. But the example that was set for us is He committed no sin. So when it happens to me, what is my response? I must not commit any sin. Again, we won't be sinless in the way that Christ was. But we can certainly follow his steps by the power of the Spirit. Second, when reviled, he didn't return the favor. When he was reviled, in other words, people were speaking against him harshly in a way that can often be more damaging than the physical suffering that he endured. Remember when you were a child? People used to say, Sticks and stones may break my bones. Words hurt the most. How old were you when you found out that's true? Because it's not true. Words do cut deeply. In fact, it's often the sharp words that cut us deeper than any weapon ever could. When people tell us off, what do we want to do? We want to tell them off. Or you want to talk that way to me? Do you know who you're talking to? And we want to revile in return. But is this the example that was set for us by Christ? No. When He was reviled, He did not revile in eternity. Instead, like a lamb led to slaughter, He was silent and endured. Though this is our inclination, we must pattern our lives after Christ, who was mocked endlessly, and He did not say anything in eternity. Third, He didn't make threats. Not only did he not return the favor of reviling his revilers, but he also didn't make threats in return for his suffering. Imagine, as they were flogging him, as they were pulling out his beard, or after they put the robe and crown of thorns on him, at any point he could have decided enough is enough. After all, it is Christ through whom all things were made. Think about it, even the thorns that grew on the bush used to make the crown of the thorns that was pressed on his head to mock him was made through Christ. All of the materials used to make a purple robe was made through Christ. Even the metals used in shaping and forming the nails that went through his hands, nothing that was made was made without Jesus. And it was used, his own creation was used to cause suffering to his body. He could have easily said, do you know who you're punching? Do you know who I am? I am the king of kings. There will be a literal hell to pay for this. But he didn't say that. And you know what? His threats wouldn't have been empty. He would have been able to live up to his threats. He would have been able to fulfill them. No, instead, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Is that our attitude? When people speak poorly of us. When we're mistreated. can we say, Father, forgive them, but they know not what they do. Take it back. I want to remind us of the first example. There was no sin found in Him. Not only was Jesus innocent in the sense that He did not commit any crimes that He was being co- uh, convicted of. Not only did He not commit those crimes, He had never sinned. Not only was He innocent according to human law, He was sinless according to God's law. And it's that Jesus who suffered at the hands of lawless men, who these men, all that they knew their entire life, was sin. I want to talk about unjust suffering. My friends, you and I can't hold a candle When we endure trials, one look at the cross ought to dispel any selfish feeling of what about me? What about what I deserve? What about what about this? What about the way that I've been treated? What about all that I've done for these people? What a- Look at Jesus. Look at what He went through. Though He was tried and punished as a criminal, it was His punishment that was criminal. Like a lamb led to slaughter, He endured without threatening or reviling forth, because He trusted. He did all of this because he entrusted himself over to God. He knew his father would vindicate him, and he even knew his father would indeed exact revenge on all of his enemies. He knew, further, he was suffering for you. He knew this suffering was not meaningless, but it it was for you. And he left us a tremendous example that we might follow in his steps when we are enduring any sort of trial, and especially as it pertains to unjust suffering, we ought to look to Christ and remember that he suffered for our sake. How can I not do the same in return? He suffered not just as an innocent man, but as a sinless man. This is the most unjust suffering you can endure. But as the writer of Hebrews 13.4 tells us, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We are called into salvation wherein we will suffer for the cause of Christ, because Christ took up our cause and suffered that we might have salvation. The vicarious suffering of Christ. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Herein we find the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And that's a lot of syllables, but a concise way of communicating that Christ died in our place. As we have just stated, Christ suffered not just as an innocent man, but a sinless man. We need to truly grasp this beautiful, profound truth. Listen to the sense in which this word, bored, is used. Listen to the meaning. To hold, bear, or support something that one is not Obliged to. In other words, he held our sins in his body. The one of whom it is said in verse 22 that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He took on, he held every last one of your sins. And all of your deceit was found in his body never reviled when He was reviled. But as He was on the cross, He held every single time you've ever reviled anyone in His world. He held all of your idle threats that you made to people. He held all of the times that you didn't trust God. He bore every last filthy detail of every last one of your sins. The things that you'd be ashamed of. Mortified to ever confess before people the perfect, sinless Savior Lord in His body. To understand it is Christ who suffered for you in your place. You were the one who was supposed to suffer, but Christ didn't. I used to be an alcoholic. I hate who I used to be. I hate the decisions that I made. But you know who hates them more? is the Father. Yet, as Christ was hanging from that tree, the Father looked upon His Son, who had never done anything wrong, as though He was Matt Kavoskos. And in the same way, if you are in Christ this morning, the Father looked at His perfect Sinless Son, as though He were you. And all of the anger that wells up within the Father's perfect, righteous heart towards your sin was poured out on His Son. Jesus never sinned. But on the cross, He took on all of yours. This is what is meant in Isaiah 53, 4-6. And with His wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Yahweh, the covenant, keeping God the holy and righteous. God took our guilt and laid it upon His Son. If that does not move you this morning, do you know Christ? Do you realize how precious He is to the Father? Could you dare look at your life before Christ and say, well, I wasn't that bad. My friend and you do not know God because you don't know how holy God is and how perfect and sinless Jesus is. He bore your sin. Never really been that bad according to perfect holiness, according to fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, my friends, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God now this morning. If you're not in Christ, all of that anger, all of that wrath, all of that fury that God holds towards sin is hanging over your head. You abide under the condemnation of your sinfulness, and you have only to expect to experience every last bit of that wrath for all of eternity if you continue to live in unrepentant sin. That would mean it wasn't your sin that Christ bore in his body, it will be you who suffers for your sin. But if you are in Christ this morning. All of the judgment, all of the fury that was awaiting you is gone. Christ took the cup of the Father's wrath and He drank the whole cup down until there was not a drop left. This is a beautiful paradox that we find in the crucifixion that according to To humanness, in a human's eyes, according to human institutions, Christ's suffering and subsequent death was the greatest injustice committed in history. Simultaneously, the Father's perfect justice was being satisfied. You see, He can't look at you in your sinfulness, looking at the debt of death that you owe Him, and say, you know what, we'll call it good. Don't you worry about it, kiddo. He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. He can't do that. He would be wicked if he did that. No, someone has to die for the sin, for the wages of sin is death. God can only justify you, absolving you of your sins, because Christ suffered and died for. In the midst of human history's greatest injustice committed against the God-man, God was redeeming man as he satisfied his perfect justice. And my friends, this is what Peter meant in quoting Isaiah, by his wounds you have been healed. This is not a passage for you to take out of context and name and claim physical healing. Christ did not endure such tremendous suffering so that you could be healed of the common cold. To take this passage to mean that we are healed in a physical sense because of the suffering of Christ is to make so small what He endured and so big your physical afflictions. It is, in fact, to elevate it above the wickedness your sin. Will there be a day in the renewal of all things where your body will finally and totally be healed? Absolutely. Yes, you will be made whole in the resurrection. But in this lifetime, the greatest disease that you face is your own depravity. That is what Christ died to heal. That is the wound that Christ the Lord. The point is made right here in the text, isn't it? Peter writes that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, not that we might be healed of sickness, but so that, Peter writes, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does this mean? Paul deals extensively with this topic in Romans chapter 67. If you've never read and studied Romans, I encourage you to do so. It is a very detailed explanation of what happens in the gospel transformation. But in Romans 6.2, he asks, How can we who died to sin still live in it? And a close parallel to what Peter is writing is in Romans 6.11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This phrase, in Christ Jesus, is the great difference maker for the believer. Leonard Ravenhill famously said, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are dead in sin and those who are dead to sin. There's no more beyond them. It is such that when Christ bore your sins on the tree, when Christ died, you died. Your sins, your guilt, all of it died with Him. As sure as He was nailed to the cross, died and put in the tomb, so your sins were nailed to the cross. Your old nature died and you were put in the tomb. Christ was then raised from the dead in a glorified body, and you and I, if we are in Christ, were raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. This is why Christ died. Not only for the forgiveness of sins, but for freedom from sin. Not just for your justification, but also for your sanctification. Not just so that you wouldn't receive the penalty of your sins, but so that you wouldn't desire your sin anymore. You have been declared righteous from the moment that you put your faith in Christ's perfect work and now you live to do righteous things. You die to sin and you live to righteousness. While the day that we put off this body of death and dawn, a glorified body, is off in the future, we are right now free from slavery to sin so that we might live to righteousness. Now, Let's remember, then, what context we find this in. We're talking about unjust suffering. And part of why Christ died, so that you would die to sin and not react sinfully in the middle of unjust suffering, but instead live to righteousness and live in a manner worthy of your calling. Lastly, Repentant, return to Christ. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the Shepherd and Overseer of your souls. This passage has been absolutely Christ-centered so far, hasn't it? And it teaches us a lot about Christ's nature. He's the suffering servant who left us an example of how to endure unjust suffering. He's our Savior as He stood in our place bearing the wrath meant for us on the cross, and He's also the shepherd of our souls. And notice the tense of the verbs here, is that you were straying, but have now returned. This is our repentant return to Christ, to the one who suffered in our place, to the one who left us an example, to the one whose blood saves, to the one who is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. So you see, Christ died, Christ suffered, Christ bled, absolutely. But all of that does not apply to you if you do not return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That is to say, this great message with God through Christ doesn't belong to everyone. This promise of eternal life it's not for everyone. It's only for those who will repent and return to the shepherd. Come back to the shepherd. Return to the overseer of your souls. Forsaking your sin and turning to Christ and running to Him John tells us, records for us Jesus' own words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The idea is that you and I are lost. Peter like, people like to say, I found God. No, you didn't. God has never been lost. God found you. He's the shepherd. You were lost. You were strained. Ezekiel captures that in Ezekiel 34 that his sheep were scattered everywhere. And then here comes the great good shepherd in Jesus Christ coming back for his sheep. He comes and dons a body like ours and lays down his life for his sheep. This is why it's not a good excuse to say that you can't come to God because of how dirty you are and how sinful you are. My friend, that's the whole point. That's the whole point is that you can't come to Christ, so Christ came for you. As the shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one, he came to rescue his sheep. Yet he's also the overseer of our souls. It's the same word that's used for elder. Means that he has all authority. As the shepherd who goes and rescues the sheep to bring them into the fold, and he exercises authority over us as if our overseer. Have you been straying? Have you been wandering from the fold? Do you have sensed a stirring in your heart? A deep inner tug, I encourage you, do not harden your heart today. But instead return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For those of us who have returned to Him, let us consider all that Christ endured on our behalf. Let us consider His unjust suffering at the hands of lawless men, His bearing of our sins in His body on the tree, His perfect sinlessness, and the example that He left for us to trace our lives over as we endure various trials. Jesus.